people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello, welcome to Twelve Rules of What. My name is Alex, and I'm joined as ever by Sam. And today we're joined by Mike Mackinwit, who uh, worked in local government, specifically uh, Burnley Council, for over thirty years. And he led Burnley Council's work to promote community cohesion and race relations during the decade uh, of the 2000s, in which the BNP, uh, the British National Party, had a great amount of success in local government. And this followed, of course, um, the kind of start of his Mike's latest book on Burnley Road, which was the kind of so-called race riots. Uh, Mike, welcome to the programme. I'm very pleased to be here. Thanks for asking me to come along. No problem. So I think for our audience, I think we, at least for me, the the, the kind of the the race riots of two thousand and one were, I was still a child at the time, and I wasn't particularly aware of 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 it or what happened. So maybe I think it would be might be a good idea for you to quickly say what actually happened in these disturbances, and how did it play into a kind of how did it reflect the uh, the wider trends of the time. Okay, well, the uh, so-called Northern Town Riots of summer 2001 uh, comprised a series of uh, disturbances that happened, uh, particularly, first of all, in Oldham uh, in uh, the uh, early summer of 2001, followed in June by some disturbances in Burnley, and then in early July there was uh, significant rioting in the city of Bradford and uh, this kind of sequence of uh, 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 riots and uh, and disturbances became known as the the Northern Town uh, riots. Uh, Now, although they were kind of lumped together in this way, actually there were differences between the dynamics in each of the cases and differences in the reasons for the disturbances and the local impacts of them. But nevertheless, in every case, there were some common factors. One was that the riots were racialized. You just referred to them as race riots, and uh, that's something to to unpack, but certainly there were kind of racialized divisions that were at the heart of them. Uh, Another key aspect of the background was the problems of uh, deindustrialization and economic uh, uh, decline, which all these northern town uh, locales have experienced. And another factor was the uh, role of the far right, specifically the British National Party, uh, in fermenting some of that unrest and then seeking to uh, benefit from it and to exploit it uh, politically. Uh, so those were the various uh, factors there. Um, there's a wider context, I think, which was that this happened a few years into, three or four years into the new Labour government, Tony Blair's government. Uh, and uh, although there were a range of economic uh, initiatives that uh, Blair had introduced, these had not yet at that time had any noticeable positive impact in any of those places Burnley, Bradford or Oldham. Uh, and therefore, there was a bit of a kind of mismatch between some of the rhetoric that was going out from government about things can only get better and cool Britannia and the uh, lived experience of uh, local communities on the ground. Um, there'd been a bit of a, a, a kind of contradictory set of initiatives taken by Labour on issues to do with race relations and multiculturalism Uh, up until that point, but from the 2001 disturbances, there was a policy initiative introduced which was uh, dubbed Community Cohesion, and this became uh, really the framework for uh, government uh, management of uh, racism and community relations and equalities issues uh, for the rest of the uh, Blair government, and in my view, in different variants uh, ever since. So that's a little bit of a summary, uh, Alex and Sam. Thank you, yeah. Um, so in the book, you kind of push back against like attempts from, I suppose, both the left and right to impose like, kind of a wider politics 
on uh, the disturbances. Um, so you talked to people about kind of left academics thinking, uh, putting these uh, disturbances in terms of like, you know, political uprisings and things like this, and you push back against this. However, you, you also say that the events around Duke Bar on Yorkshire Street and in Burnley would express tensions that had built up more widely across the borough. Uh, so I, I wanted to know how do we join the specifics of what happened in Burnley with these kind of broader trends that were happening in the country? Is it possible to kind of marry up the micro details of how a kind of riot or disturbance gets out of hand and takes place with these kind of wider currents? I think it is, but I, I, I think it's something that you have to do kind of carefully and with great attention to the specific facts in a local situation. When you describe the way that I'm pushing back against uh, interpretations of these events as uh, uprisings or rebellions, what I am concerned by there is um, a tendency that there sometimes is amongst anti-racists and uh, on the left to uh, over-romanticise episodes of reaction and response to social problems and forms of oppression. And I do want to spend a bit of time explaining what I mean by this because I want to be absolutely clear that my political sympathies and my Uh, Outlook is, in my view, uh, one of uh, being anti-racist and I'm on the left. uh, And therefore, my concern is with the problem of us being uh, insufficiently critical and insufficiently thoughtful about the specifics of what's going on. And uh, what was happening, in my view, in Burnley was a set of reactions to social problems that were uh, building up, uh, but that those problems were, uh, those reactions, those responses were not uh, necessarily uh, progressive. Uh, They were ones which made the problem worse. They were ones which uh, showed the lack of uh, political um, uh, kind of analysis that we need if we're going to be able to respond to problems of structural racism and uh, economic uh, deprivation in ways which really uh, turn things around. And so my uh, concern about kind of the easy labelling of any situation where, for example, young Asian uh, men are fighting with the police as an uprising is that actually what we need to do is look more carefully at the actual dynamics and the issues that are uh, uh, determining the way that people behave. Now, the specifics in in Burnley were that there had been long, long years, decades of deindustrialisation. There'd been uh, massive job losses in the local manufacturing industries, specifically cotton and, to a lesser degree, coal mining and uh, other uh, industries during the uh, 1970s, 1980s, 1990s. And so levels of um, unemployment were high, levels of benefit dependency were high. Uh, This had impacted in different ways on different sections of the community, the um, white uh, working class so-called communities and the Asian heritage uh, communities in the town. And in that context, there'd been regeneration initiatives. Uh, Central government money and European Union money had been coming into the town through various quangos in order to uh, develop some uh, new jobs and to improve community facilities and to set up uh, local projects. And what happened during the late 1990s Uh, is uh, that these positive regeneration initiatives, positive insofar as they were bringing funds into the town and good work was being done through that, these positive initiatives became the focus for social division. Politicians began arguing and community activists began arguing about whether the regeneration money was shared out in a fair way whether it was being used to best effect. 
and then a small group of councillors, all of whom initially had been former members of the Labour Party, right-wing members of the Labour Party, uh, started saying, well, the problem with this regeneration money is it's been spent in certain areas. It's been spent in particular to benefit people from the Asian heritage community, and that's not fair. It means that people uh, who are real Burnley people, in inverted commas, code for white uh, residents, are being neglected. And this um, uh, stirred up uh, resentment in the town. It became a theme that was taken up by other politicians. Uh, and uh, some of those were then expelled from the Labour Party or left the Labour Party and formed a group of independent councillors who were then free to express those views in increasingly uh, rude and crude ways. Unfortunately, these uh, provocative statements and uh, false uh, descriptions that they were giving of how the regeneration programme was running became amplified by the local press and therefore there was this kind of uh, backdrop of racialized division building up throughout the late 1990s and that was the main issue that fed into the uh, disturbances in Burnley in uh, 2001. That's really interesting so when you talk about um, when, we, when people talk more generally about um, the far right now and uh, the alt-right and various kind of things on the internet they generally tend to refer to them uh things as kind of fake news conspiracy driven and so on but it seems like that was already present there in the the 1990s already um and then into the 2000s what do you think was the role of conspiracy rumor and so on not only in kind of sparking the riots um more like directly but kind of over the longer term because in the in the, in the introduction to the book you have this um description uh the first few kind of pages of the book are just a description of what happens and almost every single part of that um of those riots are triggered by someone just spreading some sort of rumor someone believing some sort of thing um and so on so do you think that there was um yeah do you think that rumor was like a pretty significant part of this and if so were there any tactics that or strategies that were able to be deployed that allowed people to reduce the total amount of kind of um mistrust bad faith and so on in the in the kind of political situation uh yeah i mean in relation to the uh very fast moving uh situation when the riots were actually happening uh rumor and uh misunderstanding played an unfortunate uh, role in terms of uh i suppose ratcheting up people's kind of concerns and excitements and anxieties one of the um early incidents in the uh, riots in Burnley was that um, an Asian man who was a taxi driver was uh, driving home from work in the early hours of the morning and had um, an object thrown at his car, stopped the car, got out to look at it and was um, attacked with a hammer by a group of uh, men, uh, many described as white men. Uh, the uh, Rumour flew around amongst his colleagues in the uh, taxi uh, networks that uh, this uh, man had been killed. That was not the case. Uh, he was badly injured, uh, but he did recover. Uh, but the uh, idea that a man had been killed in what was uh, uh, evidently and was defined later by the police as uh, definitely a racist attack, uh, the man was... Uh, uh, targeted simply on the basis of his ethnicity, obviously ratcheted up tensions and the police uh, were putting out messages that actually the man's not died, but the rumours were going round. And that kind of thing, I think, unfortunately, is part of what um, everybody that's in a, a kind of live riot situation needs to be managing the uh, uh, tendency for things that happen to be uh, misunderstood or exaggerated uh, uh, gets in the way of people kind of acting on the basis of the way that things actually are and that's happening in a fast-moving situation. Um, the uh, wider issue of the way in which um, myths and rumours had 
fed into the, um, if you like, racialized divisions that form the backdrop to the uh, riots of 2001 and more generally the um, rise of or the breakthrough of the British National Party in Burnley, which was the first town where they won uh, some uh, seats, a clutch of seats uh, under Nick Griffin's leadership, is that uh, political actors, so these far right, uh, sorry, these right wing Labour councillors that formed the independent group and then later the BNP, they promoted falsehoods. They uh, said things about the way the council or the police or other uh, agencies were operating, which made it out that uh, white people were being neglected, Asian people were being favoured or indulged in different ways and the um, uh, evidence, well, this was kind of presented as evidence that the uh, powers that be were only interested in ethnic minorities, they were politically correct, they weren't interested in ordinary local people and of course this had an extremely divisive effect. Um, now I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, uh, of uh, absolute falsehoods being promoted. There was one of the independent councillors who uh, started saying, well, I'm opposed to this mosque that's uh, being planned for my local ward. And everybody says, oh, yeah, you should be opposed to the mosque. Why do they need a mosque in this ward? There's hardly any Asian people live in this ward. So why are they wanting to have a mosque in this ward? It was an easy campaign for him to um, block the mosque from being built in his ward because it was he himself who'd uh, written up the entirely false planning notices Amazing. and pinned them to the local... Wow, uh, okay. that, is, that is a high level of deception. That is a high level of deception. But the reason that I'm ma making that point is to uh, start off by saying there's a kind of... To, to make the point that there's a kind of spectrum of these things. So there's a direct deception. And then there's kind of um, exaggeration where actually... For example, it is the case that Burnley Council put into its um, uh, job adverts that it would be a desirable attribute if people that were being uh, recruited into front-facing posts for the council could, as well as speaking English, speak one of the other languages that was spoken in the local community. Uh, that was the case, and in my view, quite properly, because it's obviously the case that if a public servant can um, have a conversation with somebody in the language that they're more comfortable speaking, that helps deliver the public service. But this was um, good practice, which was then misrepresented and distorted to make it out that you're favoured in terms of your likelihood to get a job if you are a speaker of Urdu or Bengali, rather than a speaker of English. In fact, this was simply an extra attribute which would be desirable if you were the appropriate person for the job. Uh, so there's a kind of distortion thing going on. And then there are some things where actually, when the uh, right-wing Labour councillors or the uh, BMP say, well, there's something going on and it has an effect on the way that public services are provided and there's a degree of disadvantage for people uh, from the white community as a result of this. There's actually truth in that. So, for example, if the local swimming pool is closed down to general open activities for a couple of mornings a week because there are classes being run for Asian women uh, because they wouldn't access the swimming pool other than for women-only sessions that were being run in a kind of a culturally sensitive way. Actually, in that situation, there is a cost, if you want to put it that way, to the extent to which the public facility is open generally. Uh, and so, if you see what I'm doing here, I'm giving different examples of where the different kind of things that the uh, far-right uh, point out as problems uh, and use to stir resentment cannot all be simply dismissed by anti-racists and the left 
as uh, myths and rumours and lies. Because actually, in some cases, the public authorities are doing things which need to be uh, justified and explained. This issue of like um, uh, white resentment, I think, is a particularly uh, difficult one for people on the left to like kind of, I suppose, uh, yeah, tangle with because there's or there's probably a fear, and I suppose at the time this might be the case too, that you know if you kind of uh, give in to these kind of these kind of racial anxieties of white people, then you're giving into racist uh, feeling and racist sentiment, and therefore you're kind of throwing a stop to racists and things like this. Uh, how how do we kind of and I, I don't think that the problem of like kind of uh, resentment has gone away in society at all as well. How do we deal with this um, kind of resentment and kind of sullen resentment without while still acknowledging, you know, anti-racism and the need to uh, deal with structural racism in society as a whole? Yeah. I mean, Alex, I think this is the really crucial question that I think is raised and hopefully explored in uh, the book. And as you say, it's definitely not a kind of uh, uh, issue that's gone away. In fact, the kind of things that we were dealing with in Burnley 20 years ago and colleagues in Bradford and Oldham and some other places were also dealing with at that time, uh, and where we felt uh, this is something that we're dealing with as issues in local politics, have of course subsequently uh, evolved, if that's the right word, uh, to become kind of key uh, issues shaping uh, politics in this country because, of course, the resentments against immigration, the panics about so-called moral uh, political correctness, uh, the so-called culture wars, and the way in which antipathy towards immigration and antipathy towards this thing called Europe and the uh, myths and the falsehoods and the exaggerations that have shaped the whole uh, drive in British politics that has brought about Brexit are effectively these problems that we were dealing with in Burnley uh, on a bigger scale. They're fuelled by people's anxieties, their sense of identity being uh, somehow under threat, and they've uh, turned into this imaginary resolution of, by voting leave, we can uh, somehow get to a place where we don't have these kind of concerns, frustrations, anxieties anymore. A, a, a kind of imaginary resolution that I think has already proved uh, not to have delivered what it promised. Um, so certainly the issues are still big and carrying on. In terms of the issue of how do you uh, handle and respond to the anxieties and the uh, frustrations and the resentments that are expressed, which include elements of racism, and how do you respond to that in ways that don't indulge or confirm uh, those uh, expressions of racism? I think that's an extremely key debate at the moment. It relates to debates that have been going on uh, about um, Labour Party approaches in the recent period, where, for example, uh, in the Hartlepool by-election, uh, there was um, uh, the uh, idea put out through the Labour Party that the thing that we need to do is wave some union jacks, uh, acknowledge the concerns and the frustrations and the resentments that um, people are raising, which mean that they're ready to vote Conservative for Johnson's Conservatives rather than for Labour. And of course, uh, that strategy, so-called strategy by Keir Starmer, has been very much criticised from uh, the left and by anti-racists as uh, indulging and uh, giving in. I think the phrase that's quite often used is giving in to uh, what the um, uh, what are sometimes called legitimate concerns on the part of uh, so-called white working class people. Uh, now, that's to frame the problem and the issues. I think my view is that we need to make more distinctions when we're talking about these issues than we quite often do. Because if 
people are concerned or anxious or worried about a situation. If you're a politician in the Labour Party or in any other party, you have to relate to those people. You want them to vote for you. You've got to kind of connect to them. And in some ways, that means acknowledging and recognising the concerns that they're raising. It doesn't necessarily mean that in doing that, you affirm and agree with and indulge and uh, back the form in which and the way in which they're expressing those frustrations and resentments. Uh, a useful uh, word, I think, in this is uh, about whether you mirror the concerns that they are raising. Uh, my view is that you can talk to somebody who's concerned about immigration to their town. I'm talking about a white resident here uh, who's concerned about immigration to the town. You can uh, notice that they're expressing their frustrations and their concerns in terms of antipathy to others and through support for Brexit or through opposition to immigration. And you can say things which recognise and are sympathetic to the hurts and the uh, defeats which they have experienced, the lack of access to jobs, the way in which public services have been underfunded, the pressure that there is in day-to-day -day living. But you can do those things without uh, indulging and backing up and echoing and mirroring antipathy to uh, other people without indulging the racism. So what you've got to do is a kind of um, uh, double job of connecting to the underlying uh, frustrations that people have and first of all not uh, indulging the racism which they might be expressing as part of that and then as you develop the uh, relationship with them and the dialogue over the issues that they're concerned about you may begin to make points which are anti-racist in their logic and which point out the uh, ways in which people from all backgrounds and of all races whether they've lived in the country for a long time or have recently moved here or affected by the neoliberal uh, policies which are so damaging to our uh, communities and our economy. You called the um, the kind of the non-racist part of the BNP's platform uh, the kind of the well, I mean, maybe it was all kind of racist through and through for the BNP, but at least in the terms of which it was um, understood by other people as kind of underlying concerns, concerns about access to services, concerns about housing, you know, these kind of like bread and butter things. Um, is that how you see it as there being kind of an underlying set of kind of, let's say, uh, kind of material concerns, which then get expressed in this kind of racial form? Or what is the kind of the linkage that you see between those two things? Is one simply causing the other? Um, and so on. Because there are certain points in the book, when you say that, in some ways, it's quite like patronizing for people to come along and say, oh, the working class is not really racist. It's just kind of those ideas are thrust upon it by, you know, the ruling class or something like that and you say you know working class people are perfectly capable of generating their own forms of racial antipathy they don't require necessarily um all the time the ruling class to kind of you know impose it upon them so i'm wondering how you see the two relationship between these two things a bit more i'm kind of yeah it's it's a kind of complicated issue it is yeah and i guess what i'm doing there sam is again uh, as we were talking about earlier in relation to the way that we make sense of uh, riots where asian young men are fighting with the police uh, is uh, to uh, assert the importance of us on the left and us as anti-racists, recognising the kind of complexity of these issues rather than reaching too quickly for, uh, you know, simple, somewhat binary ways of uh, understanding things. You know, the... Uh, Assertion is sometimes made by anti-racists that what's going on when uh, working class people in towns like Burnley and Hartlepool or Grimsby or voting BNP or UKIP or for Brexit 
is that they're simply being uh, misled by um, uh, you know rich right wing politicians. They're being played. They're being uh, uh, given falsehoods, and they're kind of uh, taking them on board, and they're uh, being taken in. And I uh, think that that unfortunately makes the problem too easy because what is involved in a situation where large numbers of uh, people are being attracted to populist far-right politics involves agency on their part. It involves them making sense of uh, the experience that they've got in day-to-day life, the way in which they see uh, and understand economic um, trends and changes that they've been affected by, and um, although, of course, they are influenced by politicians and they are influenced by the press, as we all are, or by whichever media they access, people are making their own choices. And it's a kind of consoling myth for anti-racists and the left that uh, we don't have to do the hard work of actually uh, connecting to and engaging these people and convincing them of our politics, but we simply have to explain the fact that they're seeing things as they do, as them having been deceived by malign forces, uh, you know, uh, that we're not able to to influence and control. Um, I mean, I think to pose things uh, over a longer time scale as well is helpful. Uh, my book has been described as a kind of mixture of memoir a narrative account in terms of what actually happened through the late 1990s, the riots and the years that the BNP were on the council, uh, but also of um, analysis and of history. And one of the things that I talk about in the book is the way that um, the, uh, the kind of issues and the understandings which populist far-right politics cohered around in the late 1990s and the early 2000s, made use of outlooks and understandings which have been present within uh, working class culture in towns like Burnley for many years. Uh, You know, let's put it this way. If you were to do a social experiment where you created a town uh, based on a kind of major industry, in Burnley's case, the cotton industry, and that that was shaped by the imperial relations of the British Empire, whereby it drew in the raw materials of cotton from India and the southern states of America and Egypt. Um, and uh, as part of that, you kind of uh, told people who were making goods, not only for the home market, but for the empire, that uh, for export to, to, to colonise countries around the empire, that, you know, what they were doing was um, keeping the empire going, keeping um, Britain great. They were, give, uh, they were the best workers in the world. They were giving this uh, products out to different parts of the, uh, the globe because of Britain having this kind of massive imperial role. And then over a number of decades, that imperial role disappears because of... Uh, the uh, welcome uh, independence of the former colonised countries, the jobs disappear because of the uh, deindustrialization that affected uh, cotton and then more generally the manufacturing industry in towns like Burnley. And then through Thatcherism and the uh, defeat of the trade unions, you kind of uh, smash the collective organisations such as the trade unions and the working men's club networks and the kind of social networks that were linked to the uh, big uh, the big employers. Um, you know, what do you expect to come out of that mix other than a kind of unstable mix of uh, hurt, resentment uh, and a searching for exploration, explanation which makes use of some of the fragments of uh, understanding about the way the world works that have been built up over those decades. I mean, that's a very kind of summary uh, description of some of the themes that I explore in the book's chapter called What We Learned in the Weaver's Triangle. But the argument is that uh, these uh, attitudes have not simply... um, 
resulted from a very kind of sudden uh, uh, kind of misleading of people through the Daily Mail or Nigel Farage in relation to very recent issues, but that what those political actors are doing are making use of particular elements which have been present in working class culture for decades. And this, of course, connects to the wider debates going on on the left and more generally uh, in society and amongst anti-racists about the way in which uh, British culture remains shaped by the country's imperial past. You, you talk about deindustrialization and I think a connected process of social atomization or neoliberal kind of smashing of social yeah. institutions. Yeah. And it seems to me that part of the success of the BNP when they came, uh, when they started organising Burnley post the disturbances, um, was a kind of uh, re a pivot towards community organising on a kind of very basic level. Yeah. And uh, something that Labour uh, had kind of abandoned, yeah. uh, I suppose, assuming that um, they were unassailable in in Burnley, I suppose. Um, do you think part of the BNP's success can be attributed to this kind of attempt to rebuild a sense of community within these white areas? Yes, yes. They, it, in the late 1990s and the early 2000s, they were recruiting ordinary people who hadn't been involved in politics before. The BNP weren't uh, uh, particularly pushing their kind of ideology or their kind of uh, racist attitudes. They were saying, we're the local people that are working hard for this area. The Labour Party are interested in uh, you know, that lot over there, i.e. the Asian immigrant community. Uh, we don't want to talk about that. We just want to help you clean up your gardens or organise a local five-a-side football team. It was uh, pavement politics or like uh, community politics uh, of, a, of a classic kind, but they were the ones who were uh, with the, the, the kind of energy and the motivation to do it at a time where, as you say, there was a result of complacency or tiredness, not in the Labour Party, but the mainstream uh, parties weren't doing that. And that very, um, for a very short period of time, actually, just for a few years, uh, led to a sense of real momentum on the, uh, the the part of the BNP. What that showed is that they were connecting to um, an opportunity that was there, that if any political actor would come along, uh, local political activists or local political parties, and actually uh, just kind of get alongside local people at a grassroots level and do helpful, practical things, you know, that would help build build connections you know, that were obviously what they were doing and this connects back to the question that was raised earlier is uh, filtering into that activity this uh, divisive resentment that um, uh, was uh, the shape of their politics of course it's equally possible to do such positive grassroots uh, activity uh, and uh, feed into that uh, the politics of kind of solidarity and alliance building as would be appropriate from the left. Um, I think one of the things that's worth commenting on in relation to that period of community activism by the BNP uh, people is that it absolutely, totally wrong-footed traditional anti-fascist campaigners because at the same time that the BNP were organising litter picks and... Um, uh, sponsoring local football teams uh, and were recruiting people who worked in the local health centre or corner shop or uh, the woman who'd been a union activist in the local car parts factory. The Anti-Nazi League were putting out uh, uh, anti-fascist literature calling these people Nazis, uh, uh, saying that they were... Uh, fans of Adolf Hitler saying uh, that they were Holocaust deniers uh, and uh, such uh, familiar uh, messages of anti-racist and anti-Nazi campaigning. Now, of course, in terms of the BNP's uh, history and its roots and its traditions, all of those um, exposures of uh, the core content and the reality of the BNP's uh, political tradition were... Uh, accurate. However, they simply weren't 
corresponding to the way in which the BMP was presenting itself at that time. And actually, the BMP was changing uh, in sociological terms because it was recruiting ordinary people in towns like Burnley and Oldham and uh, Stoke and uh, parts of the West Midlands and wherever else. And therefore, actually, the BMP was shifting, in my view, from being a party that you could uh, understand as a kind of sectarian uh, organisation with uh, neo-fascist roots to something that obviously still had those elements within it, but was much more of a uh, right-wing populist organisation. It was carrying the fascist baggage, but partly because Nick Griffin was trying to steer it that way and partly because of the uh, the simple effect of recruiting large numbers of ordinary people uh, in particular locations in a very short period of time. The, 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 the kind of social content of the organisation was changing and that led to big challenges, I think, for the, um, the anti-Nazi league. They were put out to a leaflet saying, oh, you don't want to be voting for these people because they're fans of Hitler, they're... Uh, Nazis, uh, they're fascists. Uh, one of the local women that was standing as uh, a counsellor said, well, I don't even understand what the word fascism meant. I've heard my dad talk about it because he fought in the Second World War, but I don't know what it really means. And I believed her. She didn't know what she was getting into, but she was like appealing to uh, local people on the basis of saying, well, I'm just somebody like you. I'm somebody who's sticking up for my area. I'm concerned about the council being overly politically correct. I'm concerned about whether regeneration funds are being spent fairly. I'm wondering if there's a particular moment when the charge of fascist or Nazi or something like that becomes less useful. Do you think it's possible to identify maybe just like even as crude as kind of a decade or something when, I mean, to some extent, I've talked about this on the podcast before, I've subscribed to something like a kind of a, a last big hill theory of history like the way you remember things is we remember things yeah. with kind of like there's like a map there like a series of hills like in a rear view mirror in a car and you're driving away and like all you can see in the in in history is like the last big hill um and obviously the second world war is probably the biggest hill um yeah. but now but like at some point perhaps in the 90s perhaps in the 2000s perhaps in the 80s even it's eclipsed by some other thing that's happening in front of it um you know, you can see this in the kind of way that 9-11 was remembered recently, right? Like, well, since 9-11, lots of things have happened. And so even though 9-11 is itself quite a big hill, like it seems kind of, you know, um, uh, the 20-year anniversary didn't seem as uh, as kind of massive as perhaps it, it might have done. So I'm kind of wondering, do you think there's something that eclipses the Second World War in politics? Or do you think that, um, well, maybe the theory is bunk, but uh, yeah. <laughs> How do you see the kind of the, the way of remembering the Second World War as playing mm. into these... Uh, yeah, these uh, accusations from anti-fascists of, mm. you know, you're a Nazi, you're a fascist. Yeah, well, I think that's a really good question. So, I mean, obviously one of the factors, I think, is the way that the simply the passage of time uh, leads to things having a different kind of um, presence socially in the, in, in the popular kind of memory. Like Back in the uh, 1970s, when the Anti-Nazi League was campaigning against the National Front, uh, my sense is that the idea that the National Front were somehow connected to the uh, Nazi Party, which uh, uh, Britain had fought against in the Second World War, meant that you could... There was a certain kind of element of um, being able to mobilise British patriotism as part of the anti-Nazi efforts in the 1970s because of the relatively recent nature of the Second World War. It was uh, something that was still part of um, part of recent memory. And I remember that there were debates on the left uh, at that time about whether it was a, a proper and legitimate thing to do or whether it was an indulgence of uh, British nationalism to... to um, to articulate such themes, but nevertheless, it was a possibility. By the time you get into the early 2000s, the extent to which people uh, who are politically active and voting remember or understand the Second World War and Britain's 
fight against the Nazis alongside the Soviet Union and the USA and all the other allies, including resistance fighters in Europe, as a recent uh, thing isn't there anymore. It's past its history. People don't um, see it as something that, that shapes current reality. Uh, so I think that's one thing. I think the other thing is that, um, you, you know, you and I read history books. We are interested in theory. Uh, we're interested in questions like to what extent has uh, Britain's imperial past or the Second World War shaped people's social attitudes. Most people aren't. Most people are just living day-to-day lives up against the challenges they're kind of facing immediate pressures and problems and um, uh, won't critique the political lines that are uh, put to them in terms of, well, where is this coming from in terms of its roots? In terms of debates over the uh, question of when it's right to use the word fascism or Nazism, of course, this is a massive debate and there's all kinds of uh, effort put into categorising different uh, far-right um, organisations in relation to different definitions. But I'd simply say that this question of how we define um, and what, how precisely we analyse forms of uh, extreme far-right politics is, is nothing new. During the time that uh, Mussolini and Hitler uh, were uh, in power, uh, you know, there were significant debates amongst anti-fascists and anti-Nazis about how to understand and um, analyse the social nature of those regimes. Uh, and obviously that was linked to uh, debates about how most effectively to um, defeat them. Yeah, this is, like we said, this is something we've talked about on the on the podcast before, as, especially, I suppose, with the National Front, you had pictures of John Tyndall in a Nazi uniform, which could be reprinted and was very effective propaganda. Yeah. And we've often talked about how um, the lack of understanding of what a, what a far right or what the opposition actually is, recognising that Griffin did shift the BNP's political stances and its at least outward presentation, and to, a failure to account for that, I think, is a big failing of the anti-fascists of the time. You were the council officer responsible for race relations during a lot of this time, like we said, and you're, you are an anti-fascist and anti-racist. How was it for you personally, uh, I suppose, working with, serving, constraining these new BNP councillors? Um, it's a, a kind of difficult role, and I've been thinking about it a lot because uh, it's a position I've never been in. Uh, I've always seen the far right as someone to be totally opposed and out on the streets and whatever. And you're here in this situation trying to negotiate this very delicate balance. Mm, yeah. I, I hope that that's one of the uh, interesting uh, issues that's explored in the book because, um, uh, of course, what I uh, did was find myself in a position where as a result of my employment, it was part of my job to work not only with the BNP councillors, but with all the, the elected councillors. Um, and as you say, my uh, background is that I had, as a teenager, been very active in uh, campaigns against the National Front and specifically against the far-right councillors that had been elected in my hometown of Blackburn in the mid-70s. Uh, that's how I got involved in politics by joining the campaigns against uh, John Kingsley Reid and his colleagues who were uh, uh, the far-right uh, activists in, in Blackburn. Uh, you know, more generally, I've got a history of uh, being involved in anti-racist campaigning uh, and in the, in the left. Um, but that is uh, a different hat, if you want to put it that way, than the hat I was wearing as a local uh, government officer. Uh, because in that role, I was employed, I was paid as a, a servant of the council, to put it that way, to carry out the um, policies uh, agreed by the democratically elected leadership of the council. And within that, to work with all the different um, councillors who'd been elected. And therefore, uh, at one simple, very kind of technical level, what I want to stress is that when I was doing my job as a local government officer, I was within parameters, which I fully accepted and worked within, in my view, professionally, that was set by national government policy 
and by the uh, political leadership of the council, which at all times through the uh, years that the BNP had a group of members on the council, was either a Labour-led council or a Lib Dem-led council. So it was never the case that the BNP were um, in a position to make uh, decisions that I or other council officers needed to follow. They were always a, a minority group and most of the time a small minority group. There was a brief moment when they were the, the second biggest group behind Labour on the council, but that, uh, that fell away quite quickly. Um, what that meant was uh, talking to BNP councillors about what they wanted to do, and more often than not, explaining why what they wanted was not possible, uh, and why the things that they were asking for were not in line with council policy. Uh, so I was never uh, compromised in the sense of uh, being asked by the BNP to uh, do something which was against uh, my principles, but which I then had to do. I was more often uh, patiently explaining to them why, in fact, it was uh, the proper thing that the council was um, uh, in favour of um, race equality, why we were promoting particular initiatives for uh, act so that uh, Asian women could access leisure facilities or whatever. But nevertheless, uh, that interaction did involve me in uh, regular conversations and contact with um, BMP members, councillors who'd been elected for the BNP and indeed with some of the non-elected um, activists from the far right. And at the beginning, I found that personally very unsettling. Uh, I've described my political history and my political position and then to be in a position where I was uh, uh, needing so as to be a professional council officer to be proper and polite to these people that were um, far-right uh, activists uh, was unsettling and I think continued to be. But, and this goes back to some of the discussions that we've had earlier about the uh, value and the need to understand where people are coming from and to engage with them but without compromising your principles. What I found over the years that I was working together with BNP councillors is that I learned a great deal from their perspectives on things and understood how it was that the frustrations and the concerns of many thousands of people in Burnley and therefore many more thousands of others in towns like Burnley had become uh, able to be articulated through far-right politics. And what was going on was that these uh, political activists in the BNP were tuning in to frustrations and concerns and hurts which were widely felt amongst ordinary uh, working class people, they were articulating them in relation to their right wing and racist politics and they were doing that effectively. They won seats, they kept seats, they defended seats, they did fall away again but by the time they did that the themes that they'd been promoting were more widely being promoted by UKIP and by later Johnson's Tories and by uh, having the opportunity to kind of have a sustained kind of conversation and engagement with uh, these far right activists over time, what I came to feel was that, well, what they are doing effectively in terms of their right wing politics is precisely what the left need to do. In terms of left wing politics, the left and anti-racists need to connect to and engage with and acknowledge and uh, interact with the concerns, frustrations and anxieties of ordinary working class people, but without indulging or affirming or uh, promoting racist and exclusionary uh, nationalist views. And that was a useful education 
uh, for me. It was not one that I was able to immediately act on uh, during the years that I was a paid employee of the council because it wasn't appropriate, apart from not having the time, it wasn't appropriate for me to uh, say, oh, here's what I'm learning from working in this position and therefore uh, this is what the left should do. But when I left my role in Burn the Council, uh, more or less the uh, first thing that I resolved to do was uh, write the experience and the reflections up into the book which we've been talking about. Yeah, I think as I suppose as, as an anti-fascist, anti-fascist uh, kind of the, the easy part almost is the confrontation, the street demonstrations. You call out your base, you organise a demo, you you put out everyone wears black and whatever. And the the harder part, which is not a concern only of anti-fascists, it's a concern of the wider left, is going talking to people, broader organising. Um, where do you see that kind of stuff happening on the left? I suppose for me, uh, uh, the things like community organising, like Acorn is a, a great example, but what about you? Well, I agree with you. And I, I, but I also think that there's direct examples from Burnley. I mean, in, in the early 2000s, when the BNP first got elected, uh, my understanding is that the canvassers for the local Labour Party had the practice of um, walking away if they knocked on a door and said, uh, are you voting next time? Or how did you vote last time? If somebody said, I voted BNP, they would say, well, we don't want to talk to you then. On principle, you're voting for a racist party. So they'd knock on the door, find out that the voter was voting BNP, and then they'd walk away. Well, that changed after a few years. And uh, if you like a new kind of cohort of uh, Labour activists said, well, let's not walk away. Let's ask why are they voting BNP? Oh, so you voted BNP last time. I'm sorry that you voted BNP because I'm from the Labour Party. But, you know, I'm, I'm interested to know why did you vote BNP? And sometimes you would get, uh, a, you know, uh, outburst of uh, vile, racist, anti-immigrant uh, rhetoric. Uh, and uh, you'd have to handle that. But more often you'd get a concern about job losses or a concern about local services, or a concern about what's popularly called antisocial behaviour, precisely questions which the Labour Party were able to uh, act on and respond to in a positive way. Uh, and, uh, you know, those Labour Party activists were all people that were rooted in local communities, active in residence organisations, active in local churches, trade unions, community groups. And uh, they were working then to sort out issues that had been problems and frustrations for people who were voting BNP, but doing so without agreeing with the racism that the BNP voters might be expressing, but showing that actually the Labour Party and the community organisations that Labour Party activists were part of could be a way of doing something positive about the uh, problems that people were facing. Uh, this isn't anything new. These same debates took place back in the 1930s when anti-fascists in East London were campaigning against the British Union of Fascists. Uh, there were debates that went on there and they're reflected in the literature of the time. Um, you know, Joe Jacobs wrote a book called, I think, Out of the Ghetto, which was about uh, the importance of uh, physical confrontation with Mosley's BUF and, um, you know, saying that that was the way to uh, handle the uh, racism and the anti-Semitism and the threat from the uh, far-right fascists of that time. Uh, Phil Piratin, a man who I had the uh, honour and privilege to meet and to know when he was uh, late in his life, who was uh, Stepney's communist MP in the late 1940s, uh, wrote a book called Our Flag Stays Red, in which Piratin describes how he and his colleagues in the Communist Party consciously went onto the estates where he knew that there was BUF support and uh, got involved in doing things like stopping evictions and supporting people who were in rent arrears or supporting people who were having this problem or that problem whether or not they were BUF voters and supporters or not. Uh, 
And again, it's the same kind of uh, tactic that what you do is work on the issues which are affecting people who are part of your constituency in a positive way, whether or not they are currently supporting, uh, if you like, the wrong politics. But you do that by, uh, in a way that kind of demonstrates the better uh, uh, nature of your own politics and builds a relationship with them. And then over time, uh, of course, argue against the, the, the kind of racism and the divisive views that they might have. I think reflecting on your time in, in local government in Burnley Council, um, in the subsequent years after you know 2001 and then the, BM, the BNP councils being elected, what do you think was your like most, I suppose it's hard to assess what the most effective strategy was in, when it comes to an issue of like localised resentments and uh, things like this, but what do you think was the most effective uh, strategy in improving race relations in the town? It was an initiative which was called Civic Mediation. And we benefited very greatly from the uh, visits that were made by colleagues from uh, a Belfast-based organisation called Mediation Northern Ireland. Uh, Mediation Northern Ireland had uh, played a part in the uh, peace process in Northern Ireland, mediating, for example, between uh, paramilitary prisoners and prison governors and staff in the Mays prison. They'd been involved in uh, helping defuse some of the tensions around uh, parades by uh, Orange Order through Republican areas. And uh, after the riots and after the BMP uh, successes, both in Oldham and Burnley, colleagues from Mediation Northern Ireland came to these northern towns to share with us some of the approaches which they had used through the Northern Irish peace process and to see whether some of those approaches could be adapted and used in relation to race relations in England. And what we did uh, alongside Mediation Northern Ireland was organise uh, community meetings which brought people together who saw things very differently. Uh, and those were well prepared by holding preliminary meetings and conversations with people so that when they came into the room together, they knew uh, that there would be other people there with different views uh, and they knew that there would be a tricky uh, conversation that would be kind of managed and steered by uh, facilitators, if you like, mediators who'd got a, a set of skills about holding difficult conversations in um relation to disputed and racialized community issues. And uh, these meetings involved, for example, bringing together people from local mosque committees with activists from the BNP. They brought together people who were residents opposed to council initiatives on regeneration that involved housing clearance and the council officers that were responsible for uh, knocking down the houses. Uh, and a whole set of other issues were also explored issues in education, issues to do with local taxi provision. Uh, and these were the most useful initiatives because what they did was um, provide a kind of democratic space to have out the differences of perspectives and the different views that were present in Burnley's politics in the early 2000s. It didn't mean everybody made friends. It didn't mean people were hugging each other. It didn't mean people changed their mind. But what it did mean is that people understood their opponents' different point of view, if you want to put it that way, and therefore could manage their differences with some greater degree of understanding and civility. And I see that as a very kind of positive thing. I was working on those issues as a local government officer and um, not as a political activist, but I actually believe that that approach has lessons in terms of the approach that we should take politically to divisive issues and disputed issues, because it is only by... Um, 
engaging with political opponents in a way which means that you really have out the issues and recognise that the other person has got their reasons for holding their views, that you uh, 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 kind of pursue a strategy which might resolve some of these things in a positive way. And again, I'll devote a chapter of the book to exploring that. That's the chapter called On uh, from Belfast to Burnley. Yeah, the book is called uh, On Burnley Road. Um, it's published by Lawrence and Wishart, and uh, I would really recommend people getting it, uh, especially anti-fascists. For uh, um, it's not only like a kind of quite a complicated portrayal of a particular locale, um, but it explores um, really like fraught issues in a really understanding uh, and uh, constructive way. So yeah. Uh, there we go. Thank you, Mike, for, for doing this interview. And uh, that's the show. Alex, so I'm very pleased to have uh, been doing it with you. Thanks for your time. I'd also endorse the book. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's also a great read. Um, goodbye. Okay. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed that, then you can help support the podcast on Patreon. All the support we get means a lot to us and it really does help us grow this project. So that's patreon.com slash 12 rules for what and you can sign up for as little as $2 a month. Thanks a lot and I will see you very soon. Hello and welcome to We Will Remember Freedom, a monthly podcast of anarchist fiction. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. Hello and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. Hello and welcome to the jingle for both of my podcasts. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. You can find my podcasts wherever you get your podcasts or get them from the Channel Zero Network. Yeah, it is.